Uh, I think it's actually a very apt hymn to sing uh, in this time of year, uh, that God has led us through so many different sorts of ordeals and events and trials. You may feel like you've been a part of that flood crowd or the fire crowd or just the general trial crowd. Uh, Regardless, though, God is leading us along through all of that. I find that a remarkable truth. Amen. Amen. That even through and actually I'll, I'll just share this anecdote. Carol probably doesn't want me to, but I'll do it anyways. She was actually wanting us to sing uh, in in COVID season and all the year long for that last phrase. (laughs) And uh, I was tempted to, but um, because it would still really much fit. (laughs) Uh, That even through this, I I found that so profound to me. Uh, It's maybe not the most profound sort of like realization to come through, but it is, at least to me, that God has led us through this year for a specific reason and a specific purpose. And uh, we may be blind to that in the moment, uh, but he has led us through this. Uh, I shared it in the the newsletter a couple weeks ago, and it still just sticks with me. And so I'll just share it again. It's just (laughs) this year is not God's plan B. Um, One of my pastors from Florida, he he preached that several weeks ago, and it just has just stuck in my mind. This feels like an off year. It feels like somehow this is a mistake and this everything kind of went off the rails and God's just allowing it to keep going that way because, you know, might as well. Um, but this is, not, this is not God's plan B. This is not God's contingency plan for something that went wrong. This is all part of the plan of God to move forward his kingdom into our realm. And we can be confident of that. And I'm going to start preaching and that's not even my sermon. But um, I just love that thought. It is just really impacted me to a great degree that in a year that feels like everything has not gone according to our plan, that's okay because God's plans have not been upset. They have not been thwarted by anything that has happened. He is not frustrated. He's not wringing his hands about Tuesday. He is not at all nervous about it. His plans will move forward regardless of what Tuesday holds or this week holds or the rest of this year holds. And for that, I am very, very thankful. So uh, that's not my sermon. That was free. Um, Anyways, uh, we're going to keep moving forward uh, in our sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes. We are halfway through now, or a little bit more. We're going to be more than halfway through after this morning. Uh, We are looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And in all honesty, uh, the word that appears throughout Ecclesiastes, vanity, or as it can often be translated, frustration, is actually very good to describe the book of Ecclesiastes itself. (laughs) As a person who has been commissioned by God to explain the word, Ecclesiastes presents a lot of frustrating passages to try to explain and to try to put into sermonic form into a a format which appears and as if it has a really good sense of flow and thought and pattern so to speak and and actually we're getting into sort of the heart of the passages which are very frustrating to try and study and explain chapters 7 8 9 and 10 they're filled with lots of proverbs as solomon was apt to write and in fact If you read some of the commentaries on Ecclesiastes, these chapters present a wide assortment of views and opinions on the precise meaning of what Solomon was trying to convey through these Proverbs. And for instance, one of my favorite preachers was the uh, late uh, 19th, early 20th century pastor, Alexander McLaren. And if you read his commentary on this passage of scripture specifically, 
He has this assertion that Solomon's sayings are sort of a mix of untruths and partial truths or just exaggerated truths to sort of try and make sense of what he's saying, which actually I would have to disagree on. I actually think Solomon is speaking a lot of truth and many of it's just unfortunate truth. But it's truth that exists because of Genesis 3. It's truth that exists because our world is inundated with vanity and frustration and people chasing after vexation of spirit, as he is uh, often saying. This is the unfortunate truth of life under the sun that has no God. And that's why a lot of these truths appear harsh or uh, very frustrating and very grating, so to speak. And that's really the whole point of all this. Solomon, as we have said and noted, he's describing what is. Life as we know it in a, quote, post-Genesis 3 world in which sin has infiltrated every single molecule of existence. This is what he's describing. Life that is. Not life as it should be. Life in the idealistic sort of sense. Such is why he's noting all of these different areas of oppression and perversion. He's trying to come to grips with them. How do you make sense of all of these perversities that he sees? And the ironic thing and perhaps the frustrating thing is he doesn't offer a lot of perhaps wise or, or sort of robust explanations for these things. He just kind of describes them. Here's how things are. Here is how life is. And that's... Sort of frustrating. Because he describes and gives voice to these things that we are often very familiar with. And it can seem as if he's just presenting this pile of problems without really presenting a wise solution or a right solution to them. And, And it's mostly true, but it's actually not technically true because he's building up to a conclusion. Conclusion that you can read if you want to just get ahead and spoil the ending. And it's fine if you want to. You can read chapter 12 verses 13 and 14. It's there. It's not really spoiling it. But he's building you up towards that. Because he wants you to feel the tension of life as it is. Compared with life as God would have you live it. By faith and in grace. He's He's building up to that conclusion. As to how life is best lived. And to that end, he gives you this incredible sort of examination as, quote, living your best life in chapter 7 in all 29 verses. Through this series of Proverbs, I really see how Solomon here, the king, through this sort of examination of frustrating realities, he gives you a glimpse of, quote, the best life now. But the way that is lived according to how God would have us live it. Which is absolutely uh, unfamiliar and unlike what we would naturally assume is, quote, our best life. It actually runs against popular wisdom, so to speak. It runs against sort of our idea of living our best life. And I think he does that through through very specific ways. Three of them I hope to draw your attention to this morning. In verses 1 through 6. He, just, he begins describing this, quote, best life by asserting this, that death is better than laughter. Notice verse 1. A good name, he says, is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of one's birth. 
He just goes right out of the gate, subverting all of our inherent sort of tendencies to uh, how we view life and death. And he asserts that the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. This doesn't sound good at all. Actually, as we noted at the very beginning of the study, if the, if the, the Bible was the 100-acre wood where Winnie the Pooh lives, Ecclesiastes is Eeyore. He's just the guy who sees everything as gray. The color gray. He sees everything as just really mundane and morose. And he sees everything in a very gloomy sort of outlook. And that's very clear if you read verses 1 through 6. He says in verse 2, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance of the heart is, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Better it is to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Sounds pretty Eeyore-ish. Pretty morbid that he is here asserting that it's better to attend a funeral than it is to go to a party. It's better for you, he says. I don't think there's any one of us here who would sign up for that. We wouldn't naturally assume that that place is better for us than this place. Because it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't seem like it. And that's ironically how Solomon begins describing this quote, best life. It's better lived by attending the house of mourning than it is attending the house of feasting. And you'll notice several times throughout this chapter, he uses that phrase, better than, or better, which really can be translated, it's more beneficial, it's of more value for you to be in this place than to be in that place, or to live this way than that way. And so you can see what Solomon is saying here in these verses, to live your best life, so to speak, do not try and dodge thinking about death. By pretending that that doesn't exist, that it won't come for you. And actually, as Solomon here is going to say, it is only in the wise consideration of our own deaths that we are, all, uh, uh, all, that we are allowed, able to truly live at all. As we come to grips that that is in our futures, he says that is what allows you to live freely and truly in the present. That's why he says in verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men. It is unavoidable. It is the unshakable reality that there will be a day when there will be a funeral for you. It remains the great, quote, leveling agent of all humanity, death. It's undefeated. Whether you amass a huge kingdom to your name or whether you live in relative humility, death comes for you no matter what type of life you have lived. Notwithstanding who you are or what you have done or how well you have, quote, prepared. There's coming a day when we will pass away from this earth. When, as it says in Genesis, in the curse, where he says that we, our bodies, will return to dust. This is, as he says, the end of all men. It's all our realities. 
And there's nothing that you or I can accomplish or acquire or obtain for ourselves that can stop that day from coming for us. It is unstoppable. And in fact, what Solomon is here suggesting that it is the fool, is the foolish one who tries to pretend that he doesn't have that in his future. That's why he says, the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. He's describing the foolish person who would say in his heart that he doesn't want to think about his own mortality. He doesn't want to think about that at all. So he's going to try and drown it out with as much entertainment, mirth, joy, laughter as possible. He's trying to pretend that doesn't exist. That is not real. That's not for me. So he's sitting, as he says here, in the house of mirth. The house of gladness or merriment. And he's trying to amuse himself from ever trying to be convicted or uh, try to be ever uh, made to think or contemplate about his own death. So he drowns it out with laughter. As it says there, the song of fools. That's, that's not me. I, I don't, if I don't have to think about it, then I don't have to think about what that means. Then I don't have to think about what that really means for me right now. And see, he's isolating this really foolish scheme of these who are attending the house of mirth. And he says their, their whole end game To sort of pretend that this day of death doesn't exist is as effective as sparks are at producing heat. He says, it is as effective as the crackling of thorns under a pot. So is the laughter of the fool. The sparks, they flash and they make noise. And they rise into the air and they disappear. That's how effective their laughter is at preventing this day from bringing them any sort of meaningful conclusion. This laughter that they're pretending, that they can pretend that the day of death is not for them, it offers nothing of substance, like sparks, like the crackling of thorns, nothing substantive that they can actually make meaningful conclusions, that they actually become wise. I get the picture... (laughs) That these who are just listening to the song of fools and and sitting in the house of mirth, they're like a toddler who doesn't want to hear what you have to say. So they're sticking their hands in their ears. And if I can just pretend that I don't hear you, then I can pretend what you're saying is not true and will not come to pass. It's kind of foolish. Because it, it will come to pass. But such is the fool here, as he says. They're stopping their ears by pretending that laughter is all that matters. And they can drown out the noise of their own mortality by pretending that their mortality doesn't exist. And they're trying to deny that this day of their death is coming. Such is why Solomon would have them stop. Stop. Sit. As he says, verse 4, in the house of mourning. That's where the heart of the wise is. Because he realized... Solomon himself, I think, that death is a harsh reality, but is a teacher. And I would say is the strictest of teachers that we have in this life. One actually has even named it death the greatest evangelist that has ever existed. 
Because it forces us to come to grips with our own impending day when, with, when which this will be our reality. They show us the supreme value of what life is. Of what life means. It teaches us to recognize that we have limits. And that life is best spent within those limits. And they rebuke us. And how we spend our lives in the here and now. And they compel us to reckon with what we value. What are we placing most important in our lives? What are we exalting as the chief end of all of our days here in life under the sun? A funeral will teach you what that is. We're listening to a stand-up comedian likely won't. There's nothing wrong with a stand-up comedian. But there's one that teaches us what is valuable. What is eternal. What is everlasting. There's one, there's a place where the meaning of life is best and clearest understood. I think it's only as we come to face, face to face with our own mortality that we learn that. All of this, as Solomon has here noted, this vanity, this crackling of thorns and this song of fools will be exposed for what it is. Empty sort of festivity that's trying to drown out life's frustrating realities. Now, this is not to say that parties are more fun than funerals, obviously not. But what Solomon is saying is that funerals are more significant. They are more weighty. And such is why he says back in verse 2, For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to heart. They will put it into their souls. They will take it into their hearts of hearts. What this means. What it means when they see a loved one no longer here. What it means when they see a friend who is no longer with us. They will see the significance of that day. They will know what is truly valuable. We are right to celebrate birthdays. Although I think we celebrate the wrong people on birthdays. That should be like a Mother's Day probably. Except we celebrate the people who didn't really do anything. Um... But, nevertheless, we are right to sort of champion the the promise and the potential of a young life who has all of that ahead of them. But we are also right to mourn when we come to a house of mourning. Because of all of the, the finality of those places and what that represents. Sidebar, this is free. I was... In a chapel service with a guy who I still remember his name who asserted from a pulpit like this one that it was wrong for Christians to mourn at funerals. And it was all I could do to just get out of that place because I felt like he was so wrong. Um, And uh, we had a lot of conversations afterwards about how wrong he was. (laughs) Christian, you are right and free. And it is God's will for you to mourn when you come into a house of mourning. The scriptures give you the space and the grace to do so. (laughs) Don't let anyone say that it's not. Anyways, I always think about that because I thought about how frustrated I got with that speaker. But I think what Solomon is here saying, 
through this assertion that death is better than laughter is that, uh, that this place of mourning speaks to your soul and not just your feelings and emotions. But he moves on. I must hasten. He says, death is better than laughter, which feels uh, like he's describing something that is not, quote, our best life, but he, that's what he's asserting. And he moves on in verses 7 down all the way through verse 22, I believe, to say this. Consideration is better than assumption. He proceeds to sort of uh, unsettle, I think, another common notion about our, quote, best life by assuming or by, excuse me, by asserting that it is better to consider what you cannot control than it is to assume that you can. It is better to consider what you cannot control than to assume that you can. What do I mean by that? Well, let me just say this, that this extended passage of Proverbs from verse 7 all the way through verse 22 covers a lot of ground. (laughs) Solomon goes into a lot of different sort of subjects that I think have this predominant theme which comes out most clearly I think in verses 7 through 9 and then again in verses 13 to 14. Which is that Solomon is insistent on counseling whoever is reading this on slow, sort of long-winded consideration. Notice what he says. Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, frustrated, so vexed in a gift or a bribe destroyeth the heart. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient in spirit... Is better than the proud in spirit. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry. For anger resteth in the bosom of fools. What is he saying? I think he's drawing out this. That we are so, so quick to assume and presume. That we know how things are going to end. And if we don't like it, as he says, we are often tempted to take a bribe. To take a gift which destroys the heart. We assume that some impending doom is coming. And so we presume that we can control how the end is. So we take a bribe. But what he's saying here is he says patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Is that there's nothing more prideful than assuming that the future is up to us. That we are somehow the movers and shakers of all of the events of time as they are going to come. This usually means we rush to get angry over ends and events that haven't even happened yet. As he says there, be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry. We are so trigger happy with our temper over things that are largely out of our control. We are so quick. To presume that something is going to happen. That we pull the trigger on our temper. Who can control the end of a matter? Who has jurisdiction over the future? Certainly not you or I. Only God does. Only God. Behold our God. He has jurisdiction, judgment, control, rule and reign over all of the events that are in the future. We do not. Therefore, we can be patient in spirit, verse 8. And we, ha- we can be free from being hasty and quick with our anger. Why? Because he's the one who controls the future. We do not. This will liberate what you do 
on Tuesday. No matter what happens. (laughs) No matter what you decide to do. With your freedoms as American citizens in this land. Guess who controls who wins. Guess who has already foreknown and prearranged who would become the next president of the United States of America. The one who has jurisdiction over the future. The one who is sovereign. Over all things and over the end of all matters. God alone. But you see here, as Solomon here notices... That we are often, yes, quick to assume that we know better than the future rather than just considering our present moment. But we also assume that the past was better than our present too. Again, he says that in verse 10. Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. This is his reminder, as Pastor Nathan already so eloquently said. That the good old days... They were so much better than the now. It is so easy to fall into the grip of nostalgia. To view all of those events of our past with rose-colored glasses and see them and pretend that it was better back then. I do this even now. Back in my day. Those were the days. But we can, you can see that, can't you? How easy it is to assume that it was better back then. That the good old days were truly gooder than the now. They were better than what we were experiencing. Obviously something has happened. There's been a mistake. And now we are far worse off. You see this with like entertainment. We go through cycles where we nostalgize all these sorts of days. Like a couple of years ago, it was the 80s where everything was like an 80s like remix. And now like the 90s are coming back in popular culture and entertainment. Where we're rehashing and viewing all of those, that, that decade as, as some like the pinnacle of, of human achievement, so to speak. Forgetting all that was perhaps wrong or scandalous or uh, unsufferable about those days. And we do that with every generation, I feel like. And there's this tension that I think is there that is, exists. And this isn't in my notes, but it's just, it's free again. This, I'm giving you lots of free stuff today. That there's this tension that we read in scripture that man will, quote, wax worse and worse. Which is true. That man's expression of his own sin and depravity perhaps will wax worse and worse. But be careful not to sensationalize our moment as if this is the worst it's ever been. As far as I know, God hasn't yet rained down fire and brimstone and burned us up like Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not saying he can't. <laughs> but I always, there's preachers who, who assume and say, and they, they say that this is the worst that it's ever been. And that there's no going back. I don't know, maybe. But maybe we're priming ourselves For a great revival in this country. Maybe we're in the prime early days. In which we can have an incredible great awakening. Before the Lord returns. I think it's prideful to assume. 
that we know the future and it's prideful to assume that the past was better than the present. As Solomon here says, consider the work of God. God has us in these days for a very specific reason. He has us in this moment because he has called us to this moment. It may be frustrating, it may be annoying, but we are living in 2020 because God has permitted and allowed us and foreknown us to live in 2020. And he has us here for a specific reason. The frustrating part is that these days are often filled, as we likely are very familiar with, with events and things that come about that are not easily understood. Notice verse 15. He describes one of these things for us as he says, All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perisheth in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. He describes a reality I think that we are likely familiar with. Where there's this man who seems to be doing everything right and he perishes sooner than the man who seemingly lives for himself, lives for vanity and wickedness, and he prolongs his life. This is unfair, we say. And it feels like it. Here, I think Solomon is giving a voice to perhaps one of the most frustrating realities of all. That there's. Not a simple formula by which we can make sense of life where this plus this equals this. There's no equation where you can just plug things in and it'll automatically equal something here that's good. The wisdom of the world will tell you that that's false. They will tell you that karma is the operative principle by which the world works best. That to get good things, you have to do good things. And as long as you're paying it forward, what goes around comes around. There's the line from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings that if you keep your nose out of trouble, no trouble will come to you. (laughs) We feel that, I think, internally. We operate by that. Even subliminally, we live that way. If we can just do good things, then obviously good things will happen. And that creates this tension because when we do good things and good things aren't happening, we get frustrated. I know I do. You feel like you're pouring yourself out and pouring yourself into the word and you're, quote, doing good things and there's no good outcomes coming to you. And Solomon suggests that that's not always the case to assume That something is going to happen because of what you are putting forward. Sometimes, as he says here, the righteous perish and the wicked live prolonged and prosperous lives. How does that make sense if karma exists and reigns in the world? And he says it doesn't. Karma is a false reality. It sounds good. But it's not the way the world operates. You see, we are so inundated by this karmic framework that has even influenced our religious life. As he says in verse 16, be not righteous over much, neither make thyself over wise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? Be not over much wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why shouldest thou die before thy time? It is good that thou shouldest take hold of this. Yea, also from this withdraw not thine hand. For he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. Wisdom strengtheneth the wise more than ten mighty men which are in the city. For there is not a just man upon the earth 
that doeth good and sinneth not. Also take no heed unto all words that are spoken, lest thou hear thy servant curse thee. For oftentimes also thine own heart knoweth that thou thyself likewise hast cursed others. Here, I think what Psalm is doing is asserting that we cannot assume that we can control life through our religiosity. It's better, as, he think, as I think he's saying, is to live balanced in the faith. That we cannot avoid adversity and disaster by, as he says here, by being over much righteous. This karmic Christianity, which sometimes infiltrates our lives, uh, leads us to assume that it's through the accumulation of enough wisdom and enough righteousness that we can protect ourselves from trouble and hardship and heartache. You know that that's false. The Psalms prove that that's false. (laughs) Solomon is repeating something his dad was so vexed by. Why am I struggling and the perverse they are prospering? Why are we going through this hardship? We are the faithful ones. We are the righteous ones. I guess I got to be more righteous. Solomon is here advocating for a life of faithful balance, I would say. One who is then truly fearing God is the one who does not assume that they could control their presence through the means of being overly wise or overly righteous by pretending that they know better and assuming that they know better about the future and they know better about the past. Instead, Solomon is here, I think, saying, suggesting that the best life is lived by those who consider God's sovereign control over all things past, present, and future. Notice again verse 13. We're back up to verse 11. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, and by it there is profit to them that see the sun. For wisdom is a defense, and money is a defense, but the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. Consider the work of God. For who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful. But in the day of adversity consider. God also hath set the one over against the other. To the end that man should find nothing after him. God controls both things. The one and the other. He has both things in his hands. Consider what he is saying. Consider what he is doing. Be still. Consider, contemplate the work of God. Don't assume. Assume in your pride that you know better. And here, that leads me to the last thing. Death is better than laughter. Consideration is better than assumption. And lastly, in the last six verses, I think Solomon here asserts that humility is better than folly. Solomon here makes this startling confession as this, quote, wisest man who ever lived. And notice what he says in verse 23. All this I proved by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which is far off and exceeding deep. Who can find it out? This one who we know 
as the wisest man who ever lives, shocks us with this confession when he says, wisdom was far from him. It was too deep for him. Who can find it out? Who can actually plumb the depths of the wisdom of all things? It's beyond his reach, he says. It's beyond my capacity. I tried to reason all of these things out and I couldn't find out what the wisdom was that controls the world and truly understand it. There are things, he says, that we cannot know that are too deep for us to fully understand. And it leads him to this really interesting passage. Look at verses 25 through 28 because it leads him to... I would say perhaps the most difficult passage to reckon with in Ecclesiastes. Notice what he says. I applied my heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things and to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and her hands as bands who pleaseth God shall escape her. Escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. Behold, this I have found, saith the preacher, counting one by one to find the account. Which yet my soul seeketh, but I find not. One man among a thousand have I found, but a woman among all those have I not found. Now, we've got to do a little bit of unpacking. Solomon is talking about seeking wisdom and trying to find the reason of things. And he makes this sudden turn, this jarring turn seemingly to talk about some woman who he finds more bitter than death. Who ensnares people that come near her. What in the world is Solomon talking about? Is he a misogynist? Is Solomon just not very likable towards the female sex? No. What I think he's doing here is Solomon is reflecting on all that he has endeavored to do so far. He's having this moment where he's sort of confessing. I applied my heart to know all these things. And and he's explaining his motivation. Which from the beginning has to find through wisdom as he says here. The reason for things. I want to account for every reality. And how it fits into this life under the sun. All the wickedness as he says here. The foolishness and the madness. He says, one by one, I want to examine what this life under the sun has to offer and hopefully come into some sense of balance. Like an accountant going through the ledger, he's going through each line item and hoping at the end it comes out balanced. And yet, he finds out that as he does that with life under the sun, he keeps coming up with one word, vanity, all is frustration. There's things that don't jive, that don't make sense. And in fact, all he finds that this world has to offer is but the seductive allure of a woman whose heart is snares and nets. You see, he's doing what he also does back in Proverbs 1 through 9. Where he's personifying the wisdom quote of the world as this madam folly. This woman whose words are nothing but the words of a temptress who takes and captures men's souls and deceives them into throwing away their eternity by living for only that which is vanity. It's the allure of a woman. The wisdom of the world. It can only result 
in ruin, he says. It can only result in more folly. And actually, he says in verse 29, Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. He's noting. I'm almost done, I promise. He's noting. This mess that we were in, where folly and madness and wickedness and foolish are so permeating our existence, it's all self-made ruin. God made us upright, but we have sought out our own happiness and enjoyment through our own inventions, through our own devices. All of the realities of life under the sun that he has already been describing. All of the oppression and injustice and wickedness and violence and perversion that exists in this world are results of the fall. They all stem from our decision to invent a better reality for ourselves than what God had created. Adam and Eve's. Decision in the garden represents all of our decisions in which we would assume that we can be like God. It's the allure of a seductress. Which says you have the capacity to know the future. You have the ability to make for yourself something better than what God has created. It's the words of a seductress. Words which aren't true, but they sound good. They sound enticing. You see, the best life that a man devises for himself in this life is but a distortion of what God and how God originally made him. And we continually run to the distortions, hoping they will fill us, hoping they will last, hoping they will lead to this proverbial best life now. And they continually don't. They leave us empty. They leave us wanting. They leave us yearning for something more. And such is where we come to this prevailing point, I think, that Solomon has been trying to make throughout this entire chapter, through all of these different proverbs and truths and explanations, that life... After the fall is a series of one explainable, unexplainable reality after another. One seeming injustice after another and perversion after another in order to show that very truth. That we are not gods. It's that truth that comes all the way back. I think it's in Ecclesiastes 3 or no it's in Ecclesiastes 2. Where he's talking about that very thing that God is in heaven and we are not. We are on earth. It's so simple but it's so profound. We are on earth. We are confined and limited by this space and time. We are defined by time itself. God is not. He is in the heavens. He rules and reigns outside of time. Outside the confines of anything that would limit his sovereignty. He is above and beyond all that. He is God and we are not God. And so long as we pretend and believe the alluring lie that we can be gods, we are ruining ourselves. We are distorting how God made us to live. This is what Solomon has been suggesting, that wisdom is not an ultimate savior because there are events and realities that will forever remain outside the bounds of our understanding. As he says there, they are too deep for him to know. You ever come across a part of life where you just kind of have to throw up your hands and I don't know. 
It's too puzzling. It's too much of an enigma. And we hate that. We hate not being able to explain everything that happens. Because we often want that. We believe in that. I think we often believe more in explanations than just utter faith. The fact of the matter is, wisdom... The ultimate end of wisdom is not the ability to come to some sort of comprehensive explanation for the way things are. I think Solomon is proving that. Actually, I think it's this. It's wisdom is the ability to contemplatively and humbly sit and rest in the fact that there are things that we do not know and cannot know and cannot understand and never will. But is a life that has lived contemplatively and humbly knowing that there's one who does. There's one who does know what will happen in the future and why things happened in the past and what that means for us in the present. And he is ruling and reigning over all things. And it is our duty and task to humbly consider the work of God in the present. Knowing that God's authority alone is the only active and ultimate power in the universe. His authority. Not our sway, not our uh, sort of intuition, not our wisdom, which is so limited and finite. It's his authority. That's what keeps all of the planets spinning. That's what keeps all the constellations in their proper space and time and order. That's what keeps everything moving in this life. As we've already talked about in chapter 3, all the seasons operating according to their current succession. It's his authority alone that keeps that. The wise person understands that fact and humbly accepts it, knowing that he is God and we are not God. The foolish person pridefully and angrily resists such an idea and furiously tries to control his life by any means necessary, by operating according to the deceptions of this alluring woman. The wisdom of the world. Solomon's heart here is that we would be still. In the present moment, knowing that grace is what instills us with the ability to be still. This is what I see here. Solomon encouraging us to see. Grace is the gift of death and stillness and humility in the present. It's the death of our own inventions, our own preconceived notions and devices, and our own insistence about how the world and the way of life operates. It's death to all of that. And it's stillness. Grace is stillness from all the frenzied and frantic notions that we can control the world. That we can insist on the movings and turnings of our universe. And it's the humble recognition that there is one who presides over all things. There is one who holds both the day of prosperity and the day of adversity in his hands. And it frees us to sit in the middle of all of that. Knowing that we are holding on to the hope of God's sovereignty. That's the gift of grace. 
It gives us, yes, justification by faith through Jesus' righteousness alone. But that gift permeates into our present life to know that there is nothing that can sway us or move us from his hand. No matter what the future holds. No matter what the past may have been in the present. We can consider the work of God because it is finished. He knows the ends from the beginnings. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the King who knows all things. As we sung, the wonder of it all is that he came for the sake of you and me. He came to this world for your sake and for mine to take our sins from us. That we might be his son and daughter. Oh, this morning, do you have the gift of grace which frees you? To sit in life's frustrations, knowing that there is one who is sovereign over them. Knowing that there is one who controls the future. Let us bow in a word of prayer at this time.